0: right welcome to the gut check project as promised we are here in san antonio with karen krishnan of microbiome labs makers of megaspore and 35 other private labels right Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah we're busy we're busy this
0: is a busy man yeah he's got a lot of science behind him he's got a lot of people that like what they do with probiotics and it's a completely new way of using probiotics ken what do you think of that
2: well, what I think for starters, um, I just got a text from your mom and it's get on,
0: get on. Yes, okay.
1: she's always listening and correcting, yeah. so be careful. And so, I do need to so, apologize to yeah. all the
0: listeners. Just in case you don't like the sound level, it's because I'm doing it and I don't know exactly how Eric, to
1: do it. Eric the engineer?
0: Yeah, what? yeah. Eric, the Eric the really, really bad engineer. Jeff, uh, Chef Patrick, sorry. This is the best we can do.
2: So we're over here at the IFM conference in San Antonio and we've... You and Eric have met before at different conferences. I love the work that you guys are doing. Thank you. Yo, let's just start with this. Who yeah. are you?
1: Yeah, good question. So we are a band of super nerds that, yeah, that, that are battling the revolution um, that is going on within the gut, right? So we, we know that, um, and this is the way I explain it to people all the time. If you look at the human construct, we're essentially a microbial system, we are, um, the fancy word for it for those that want to impress their friends is holobiome. Holobiome. We, holobiome. We are a super superorganism. Uh, we're no more can we think of ourselves as a collection of organ systems of the brain and, you know, lungs and heart and all that connected by neurons and vessels. We are a, um, a walking, talking rainforest is what we are, right? We are an organism made up of thousands of other organisms that have to work in concert to perpetuate the health of the collective. That's what, the, that's what a holobiome is. right? It's like a rainforest. So if you look at a rainforest, the canopy, the floor, every part has a different ecology, and if any of those ecologies get damaged, the entire rainforest suffers. So we can trace back now virtually every chronic disease to some disruption in our ecology. So in our thinking, we are a microbial construct. We're made up of microbes. We've taken this amazing microbial construct and we've put ourselves in an antimicrobial world, right? So we've really shot ourselves in the foot like crazy. Everything around us destroys our inner ecology. And that leads to disease. So we're here fighting that whole problem and revolution of bringing back our ecology. Bringing back the ecology.
2: Fixing the rainforest. I love that. I always always tell my patients about, I've never used the word holobiome. I say multibiome. Because let's quit talking about just your microbiome. There's other things going on. You're exactly right. We are... Do we live for the multibiome, or does the multibiome live for us?
1: Yeah. You know, if you, if you look at the evidence and if you look at the history, essentially we are an accident because of the multibiome, right? So even the human cell is constructed of ancient bacteria, right? The The eukaryotic human cell is basically a construct of ancient bacteria, which which make up our, um, our uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm having a brain fart. Um, the energy production of the cell mitochondria the Mitochondria. yeah sorry so ancient bacteria were essentially individual mitochondria that all kind of came together to form a eukaryotic cell build a nucleus around it
2: Oh, made, so you guys think way back way year. back
1: we're going back to the beginning of time right like where all of this started from because if we don't understand that then how do we understand how oh, we that's function, beautiful right so just going back to the simplicity of it because as it turns out when we start looking at these unique multicellular organisms that we are and we're a small population of what's living in the universe or in the in the world we don't know what's living in the universe but what's living on earth Um, most of it are single cellular organisms right most of the living entities are single cellulars when we look at multicellular organisms when we look at how multicellular organisms um, communicate from one cell to the other all of those rules are written by single cellular organisms you know, hormones, for example. Most people are surprised to know that our microbiome in the gut produces virtually every hormone our endocrine system can make. Right, all of the serotonin[s] and dopamine[s], all of the stress hormones, all of uh, insulin, um, estrogen, testosterone. All of that is made by the microbiome as well. And the and the thinking is that that our microbiome actually taught our endocrine system how to make those hormones. So the bacteria provided the DNA uh, code to our endocrine system to figure out how to make hormones. And bacteria have been using hormones for millions of years to communicate with one another. And so we now use hormones to communicate within our body itself.
2: This is so fascinating because in my field, the microbiome is a relatively new concept to traditional medicine. And here you're talking about that the microbiome actually taught our bodies how to organize, how to live in the world, how to move. That is fascinating because when we think about it, the way that other people talk about, it, oh, it's so complex, we don't know that. You just dumbed it down to yeah. oh no, it's actually so simple because it, it started yeah. with just one cell that's there. It Eric, what do you,
0: you following this here? I'm following it. What I think is awesome is it's way it it does seem like that it's so simple. However, it's not just the dumbed down version of, well, you just need some good bacteria. It's yeah. way, way, way different than that. You have to understand I've for a long time kind of felt like that we are vehicles for this bacteria.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And everywhere that you go, you're basically you're kind of being driven yeah. by what it is. I mean, the, the chemical messengers that you referenced, Yeah, we interpret that, but is it really completely ours to interpret it? Not, not necessarily.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's evidence of bacteria making us do things, right? And, and you would think that there is some altruistic reason for them to do it. For example, there are certain types of bacteria within your microbiome that make you more social that make you go out, actually give you the, the motivation to go out and meet people. Um, and the reason for that, and you think, oh, why do the bacteria want me to be more social? Well, that's one of the ways that they transfer from host to host, is that if you're not social, if you're antisocial, and you sit back, and back in the day, if you sat back in your cave all the time by yourself, you're really not going out there and spreading this micro, this microbiome. Um, there, are, there are bacteria out there that um, can actually change your outlook on life. There was a study looking at women who took probiotics versus women that didn't and they took uh, women that took probiotics and then a group that didn't and they showed them a bunch of pictures and they were measuring brainwave activity and they were showing them like really stressful uh, pictures things that would bother them normally and they found that the women that took probiotics on a regular basis Mm -hmm. actually had a less intense emotional response to those pictures so their outlook on life seemed a little bit better than the ones that did. You know, and so these microbes are dictating a lot of how we even respond to the world around us.
2: So this is fascinating because as a gastroenterologist, I always try and get people to feed their microbiome. In other words, eat the diet that your bacteria really should have. Have a diverse bacteria. And now we have the highest incidence of anxiety, of depression. I mean, and all we're doing is just throwing more and more drugs at it, trying to get that to be corrected. When the reality is if we could balance the bacteria... And you know what? And you know what I really like about this? This is an excuse for me to go to Vegas with my buddies. I'm just like, hey, the bacteria are telling me to get out, honey. Totally, I'm, yeah. I'm doing and this for health. That is one of the best places to swap bacteria. Yeah, exactly. that's, a, it it's is, a, yeah. that's a microbial yeah. Vegas. I'm going to Vegas to keep away disease, honey. Yeah,
1: especially at three in the morning when you're laid right out on the yeah. sidewalk from yeah. all the activity. Yep, There's that's one of on exchanges the
0: best. Ba- I do have a question though. So the study, which I find completely fascinating. Would it, did it matter what the delivery system is? And the reason I ask that is because we, we oftentimes, Ken, uh, through the practice, we talk about not all probiotics, number one, are created equal. Yep. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, the delivery system, which is how we totally. met. Yeah. Is, so kind of talk about that. Why does it matter how a probiotic is delivered? Yeah, And uh, I'll let you take it from there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's critical because um, in large part, you know what we saw when we started studying probiotics, and the way we even got into the space. Is yeah, can I? I do, a, I'm
2: gonna. I just want to know a little more of the history. How did yeah. you end up even looking at the bacteria? At the whole thing. Yeah. So
1: um, I, when I got into the natural space, so I'm a microbiologist by training, and I was uh, a uh. research nerd, and I, I had a big, um, you know, interest in the whole natural health space, and I would go to places like GNC, and I'd buy products, and I'd ask them about their studies. And they had no, I mean, most products don't have studies on the marketplace. Um, And I started questioning companies, like, why don't you have more studies? And really what I ended up finding out is that it's too expensive to do clinical trials, right? A vitamin company can't afford a half a million dollar trial to figure out the product doesn't work. Yeah. Right? And pharma companies do that all day long, right? They have one in a thousand compounds that successfully enter market, but they'll spend millions of dollars on those 999 that don't do anything. Uh, or do something really bad. Uh, But nutritional companies just can't afford that. So I said, there's gotta be a way we can change the paradigm of how you do clinical trials to to make it more affordable and make it more functional for nutritional companies. Number one, figure all the disease outcomes, right? So if I have a compound, a natural compound that can reduce blood pressure, if I did a $100,000 study on blood pressure the problem with it is I can't talk about it because FDA doesn't allow you to go out there and say, you know, this this extract reduces blood
2: pressure. Well, let's talk right? about that really quick, also, because you know, because we're in the same space. I, I like I started yeah um, as a gastroenterologist doing pharmaceutical research. And when you start talking about these products, before you even get to the point where you can say what it is, you have to go to an IRB and apply for an NDI and all these other acronyms that make it almost prohibitive for somebody that's trying to be altruistic and go, look, I just want to know if this works. Totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the outcomes, you know, what like what what are we really figuring out and studying here? And so what I did is taking blood pressure as an example, rather than looking at the, the final outcome of, um, you know, reducing the pressure in the vein using a cuff like anyone else would, I looked at structure or functional changes in the, in the pathway to reducing blood pressure. So looking at changes to angiotensin enzyme and so on. You know, so looking at structure function change that lead to that outcome rather than looking for the outcome itself. And and the FDA allows you to talk about structure function changes in the body. Right. So that's how I figured. And and with those kind of biomarker changes, you don't need as many subjects. You can do smaller oh, pilot that's studies. Super smart. Right. And, and we were able to do. So I was doing all of these studies with. 8, 10, 15 patients, giving companies an idea what their product might do in the system, what the ultimate outcome might be, looking at small changes in the pathways to those products.
2: And so were you drawing blood levels of angiotensin? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: angiotensin, angiotensin converting enzyme. We're looking at things like rheological measures on the blood, uh, the viscosity of the blood using this machine called a rheolog uh, that measures real-time viscosity of the blood and what work it takes to pump that blood through through the vascular system where were you doing you know? this at so uh, so then i opened a cro a clinical research organization Oh okay uh, my mom is a medical doctor um she's listening by the way for correct pronunciation yes. as you said <laughs> so mom hi how are you um so she's a medical doctor i made her my principal investigator and uh we opened in the south side of chicago a clinical research organization and i started working with supplement companies and saying hey I can design a clever study for you to figure out what your product is doing. It's not gonna cost you much, and you can pilot it. You know, If you do a pilot study for 20 grand and you get some idea that your product has a benefit, then it's easier to invest 50 or 70 into a bigger study because then you know you can get the marketing benefit of doing that, right? But companies are just not gonna spend 100 grand right off the bat and figure out the product doesn't do anything. So I created clever pilot studies and things to give people an idea and from doing that, I started getting companies inviting me to come on their board, scientific board, or helping them with product development in the supplement world. Um, and that's how I got into the supplement world. So it's purely from the backside, the research, um, and having this research organization.
2: So in a field where there's really little to no research, you started with the research and worked your way uh, into the field.
1: Worked it, worked it in, and then really, I came to immediately find out who the best companies were because. Ninety-eight percent of them were like, "Yeah, we're not really interested in doing a clinical trial." I'm like, "But it's twenty grand, and you could figure out whether your product's actually making any change in the body." Like, we don't really want to know that, you know? <laughs> and I think a lot of it is they don't want to know it does. It's not doing anything. Well, because- I
2: think a lot of it is, and we have we have discussed this before on the show that you know they did that analysis where they looked at products that they pulled them off the shelf and yeah. DNA analysis showed that almost uh, 80% of them did not have what was in the capsule what was totally. on the label. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and that and, and we know that since we've been in process and you know this as well that unless you see where it's being sourced, yeah. how it's being extracted, how it's moved over, yeah. there are so many players in a chain when it's a mass commodity totally. that yeah. you may end up not having at all what you think you have in that capsule.
1: Yeah, and you have to test it at every step of the way too, you know. When when you bring the raw material in before you blend it in with other stuff, um, after you encapsulate it, every step you have to do the testing again to verify that it's still what you want it to be. Um, but you know, there was a large multinational company um, that, that found it, and I was working with them on product development. And they basically came and said, you know, they were a pretty big probiotic company to begin with, and uh, but they were getting a lot of competition in the retail space from new probiotics coming in, and a lot of those probiotics are what I call the kitchen sink probiotics, where you just kind of throw everything in it, you know. We're just going to put nineteen strains in this, and you're, and i sit in these meetings and go, why nineteen strains? Like, why did you pick these strains? And they go, well, our competitor has seventeen, so yes. it's be a little bit better. And you probably right?
2: saw the evolution like I did, where it started out is like we got one million <laughs> right. colony-forming units, and then the next person's 10, yeah. and then that's 20. Totally. Now it's like, we have one trillion Euro-ish. units in this one <laughs> capsule. You know, yeah. Do you have somebody actually plate counting that, and making right. sure, you know, but it just becomes a marketing thing.
1: It's all marketing. And I, I would sit down in these, because I, you know, like I mentioned, I became part of advisory boards of companies, and I'd sit down in these meetings where they're developing products, and they would go, we want uh, 15 strains and 50 billion. And, I, and my first reaction is, number one, why 15 strains? Why 50 billion? Like, do you have some sort of study I'm not aware of that shows 50 billion works and 30 billion doesn't? And they go, well, no, this is the closest competitor, and they have 35 billion, so we <laughs> want to be just that much more, right? And then here's where it really becomes bad. It's like they have a company that they're benchmarking next to, and and they want to be higher count than that company, but they want to be same price point. So if you're putting more in and you want to be at the same price, the more that you put in ends up being lower quality because you can't spend as much on it, right? So now you've got 20, 25% more ingredients in their higher amounts, and yet you have to be at the same price point. So you have to go with a lower value ingredient product. So now we've got things like Lactobacillus acidophilus, which is the number one probiotic strain in any product right? you find it everywhere in in probiotic products you can buy a tanker load of it For like three grand really a tanker load of it. It's insane. Yeah
2: And so when you're in the probiotic world, I'm not in that world Yeah, when you do start buying the raw materials for probiotics, how is that actually? Done. Yeah. Does it come as like a like a culture bath? Is, is it an agar? What yeah. is it? So
1: I'm so glad you asked me that question because when we saw that study from um, from UC Davis that that tested the products on the market by DNA, yeah, right, and they showed that the vast majority of products that they tested did not have the right strains in the capsule than what was claimed on the label. And then you ask yourself, well, how in the world does that happen, right? Like it's like launching a product that says vitamin C and there's nothing but vitamin A in it, yeah, right. Like how do you make that mistake? So, it all comes back to how you buy probiotics. So, if I'm a probiotic company and I'm going to put together a product, I go, okay, I want these 10 strains in it. I'll call my ingredient distributor and I'll say, I want acidophilus, rhamnosus, uh, you know, casei, whatever the strains are, Um, ship me a drum of each. It'll come to you as a drum. You open the drum and it's just a powder. And there's no way you know that this is actually lactobacillus acidophilus. Exactly. There is something called a CFA, a certificate of analysis from the manufacturer that says you have now purchased lactobacillus acidophilus. But how do you know that, right? That it's just powder. It's, you can't tell. In order to really verify that, you have to send that powder to some university or lab to do full DNA analysis in order to verify that it actually is. But that's not part of the regular, the GMP regulations. So nobody's doing it. Right, so a manufacturer sends you a drum of powder and they say, this is lactobacillus acidophilus, and you go, okay, yes it is, and you put it in your capsule and you put the product on the shelf. So, so when it no comes idea. there,
2: how do you even know that it's even viable also? I've always right. wondered this, because people say, is it actually?
1: Yeah, now some companies will do a plate count. So they'll take uh, a known amount of it, like a, um, like a gram, mix it in water and plate it to see if it actually grows. Um, the problem is something is gonna grow because there's bacteria in there, you just don't yeah. know what bacteria, yeah. right? So you look at the colonies, and you can't tell what bacteria it is from the colonies, but you go, oh great, something's growing, it must be fine, and then you put it in a capsule and you put it in the, on the shelf, and you have no
2: idea what's in the product. Wow. You know? No idea. So that's how the typical probiotics are there, but yeah. you have something very unique. Yeah. Now let's get to Eric's question that he yeah. was gonna say. Yeah,
1: totally, so, um, so when that multinational company um, hired us To do research for them, Uh, we approached the probiotic industry purely from an objective standpoint to do research for them to figure out what is going to be the next generation of probiotics. So we started studying all the stuff in the market, and we started to figure out that the vast majority of probiotics in the market are dying in the stomach, whether if they have bacteria in it. They're dying in the stomach. You're basically pooping it out eight hours and 12 hours later. Um, they're not. Most of them are dying on the shelf, even if, if, if they even get to your stomach. And then I even had the, um, you know, the approach of going to health food stores and just asking people. I would go, "What are your best probiotics?" And the clerks would always point me to the stuff in the refrigerator, right? And I would go, and as a microbiologist, I'm always confused, like, why are they sitting in the refrigerator? So I'd ask them, and I go, "Why are they in the refrigerator?" And they say, "Well," These are the highest quality, they're live culture, and to keep them as live culture, you got to refrigerate them, right? And they'd say, okay, and when you buy them, take them home and put them in the refrigerator. And I'd go, okay, so if they sat on the shelf, um, they would die. And they'd go, yes, that's why I'd make sure you keep them in the refrigerator. I'm like, okay, it's 70 degrees in the shelf. It's 98.6 degrees in the body. How is it going to survive there we can't sit on the shelf at 70 degrees? And they never had an answer, you know? So to me, I was like, all the stuff that's in the refrigerator makes absolutely no sense at all. And so we wanted to take a completely different approach to it. We started going, where did our ancestors get their probiotics from, right? We have this really intimate relationship between us and bacteria. They conduct many functions for us. That doesn't occur overnight. So there must be this long-term relationship with bacteria. And we look at our ancestors, they were smart enough to eat dirt, right? They didn't clean their environment, they didn't sterilize their environment. And so um, we started focusing on environmental bacteria. Now, the thing is, most environmental bacteria can't act as probiotics, because most of them will die in the stomach as well. So we started kind of honing in on what bacteria we would come across in the environment that actually had some special function that could act as a probiotic. The first one that we came across were these Bacillus endospores. So these are unique bacteria that belong in the gut, but they leave the gut through defecation. And when they go out in the environment, um, when they go out in the environment, they go into the spore form. And because they're in the spore form, they put like an armor-like coating around themselves, and they can use that armor-like coating to survive through the gastric system and actually end up in the intestines. Oh,
2: one second. Just go ahead and take a talk on your oh, No, second. no, no, don't talk. No, no. okay. I think it's still going. I've done this during podcasts. I, and the podcast always keeps going, so. Okay. So great, yeah. Is there- did you get Yeah I did. Did it is it saying no? It didn't it. It's this memory I asked you, I said my guy does go slow. It's still running. Okay. okay.
0: It's, and go here. That's, some,
2: that's
1: yeah. one that's one one too. Okay. Um we we'll, Okay, so let's get
2: back to the can you describe what a spore the first spore biotic that you guys wanted to yeah. yeah,
1: so uh, we, were, we were trying to find these environmental bacteria that had this special characteristic of being able to cover themselves with this spore coating so that they can actually naturally survive through the gastric system. Um, and we we looked at research and we went to the biggest, best researcher in the spore world, it's Dr. Simon Cutting out of Royal Holloway, University of London. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's been studying spores and he runs the International Spore Event and all of that. So he's a super spore nerd, basically, right? Um, and, and then there's some, um, there's some really interesting stuff that he's doing using spores as a vaccine delivery vehicle, which we should talk about at some point. Um, uh, but, but basically, we went to him and we licensed a bunch of spores. Oh. And we said, we want your spores that we know function in the gut. And so we licensed five spores for him. And we looked at the function of each one. And we saw that each one did a little bit of a different role in the gut. And so we put together the first multi spore based probiotic with the idea that these spores will number one actually survive through the gastric system and go in the gut and start making a change to
2: the rest of the microbiome. So as a microbiologist, can you explain to everybody that so the bacteria gets into a spore form, it can tolerate yeah. cold, hot, it just waits. Yeah. What does it wait for?
1: Ah, so it's waiting for a molecular handshake, I call it, with the mucosal cells in the small intestine. So the moment it gets right into the the duodenum, or duodenum, as some cool people say it, I don't know how gastroenterologists say it, duodenum or duodenum? Uh, The
2: upper gut.
1: (laughs) The upper part of the gut. Uh, So it gets into that upper part of the gut, and and they have receptors on the outside of the spore that tell them that they're in the gut mucosal tissue. So that binding, the temperature, um, and then some nutrients will get them to bust out of the spore state. You know, and, But it can remain in the spore state, outside of the body, for literally millions of years. The oldest spore found was found in uh, fossilized amber bee, in the gut of the bee. Um, they, were, they actually found a whole ancient bee that was fossilized. They drilled into the gut to find what the substrates were in the gut. They pulled out some spores and they could still plate it. It was still alive. 250 million years old. <laughs>
2: That's insane. 250
0: million That sounds like Jurassic Park stuff. Totally yeah, Jurassic really Park,
2: yeah. It does. So let's get back to this, because the way that I've kind of um, been telling my patients, the reason why I like spore-based yeah. is that because that spore can actually survive both the acidic environment and it starts that handshake in the small <clears throat> bowel, but yeah. it's really meant to really proliferate where your real microbiome is. Totally, so yeah, the, towards large the yeah, yeah, towards the end of the small bowel. Yeah. So it starts the handshake, and by the time it makes it down there, it's fully awake. So it's totally. like a, I almost liken that. If we're going to start talking about movies, that's almost like you know time travel, where you get in the pod, and as you get closer, yeah. you start to wake up. So <laughs> totally,
1: yeah, and, and so it's making its way through the small bowel. What's interesting is it makes a um, an interesting a couple of stops in the small bowel. Really? So, yeah. So we always um, encourage people to take it with food. The reason we do that is in the presence of food, the bacteria produce digestive enzymes. So the spores are the largest commercial producers of protease, amylase, cellulase enzymes. Like most of the enzymes that you find from uh, from fermentation, that are the big commercial enzymes, are produced actually by spores.
2: So all these enzymes that you can get at these functional places—they're actually yeah. produced by spores. They're not produced because I was told that they were plant-based enzymes. Yeah. So
1: so some of them are extracted from plant. Most of them are made by uh, fungal fermentation or spore fermentation.
2: I did not yeah. know that.
1: Yeah, they make them. They make the enzymes, and so. They'll, they'll help you digest your food. They'll hang out for a little while in the small bowel. With the food there, they'll produce all of these digestive enzymes to help you break down your food. Then they'll move down. And the part that's really interesting um, is that they move to the, uh, to the ileum, where the Peyer's patches are. Yes. And they interact with the Peyer's patches no to help jenny. regulate T and B cell uh,
0: proliferation. So they are some of the strongest proliferators of T and B cells. How? I, we, I hate to do this. We are up against the break. We're going to be joined in the second half hour. We are yeah. not. Don't forget, if you're listening right now to Gut Check Project, you are looking at Kiran Krishnan talking about how spore-based probiotics are the best way for you to consume probiotics. Hang on, Gut Check Project, back at you. Okay, we are back with the last half hour of Gut Check Project. We are joined by Kiran Krishnan, who is going to completely change your mind on how to consume probiotics, what they can do for you, Take it away because we just unfortunately take a crazy break just to uh, do, do it. it. So, right, right when we left for the break, yeah. you
2: were talking about the incredible journey of the spore. This should be a yeah. children's book, totally. By the way. Yes. You should write a children's <laughs> we book. We are working <laughs> on an animated short <laughs> I television. love it. Yeah, and, the incredible journey of the spore bacteria. So, <laughs> yeah. now you were just talking about the ileum the and ileum, where it goes yeah. there, and what does it do there? So, in the
1: payer patches, which is you know one of the biggest areas of sampling in your gut for your gut immune system. Um, they actually interact with the, with the immune cells in the Peyer's patches, and they upregulate your T-cell and B-cell expression very significantly. And you see that through the, the Peyer's patches are connected to the mesenteric lymph node, and you see that proliferation of your immune cells throughout the body. And in fact, you get a lot of anti-inflammatory cytokine expression right at that juncture. So because the spores are what we call immunogenic, they're so strong at interacting with your Peyer's patches. That's why I, I prefaced it before by saying he's developing vaccines using the spores as a delivery vehicle. Oh. So here's how that works. This is fascinating, right? So they, they're able to take the spore and take like a tetanus antigen, for example. Instead of doing a tetanus vaccine where you inject it, you stick it on the spore and you swallow it. The spore takes it all the way down to the ilium, to the Peyer's patches, and presents that antigen to the Hold immune cells. And you get a more robust in, uh, uh, mm. adaptation response to that than injecting it in your arm or your thigh or anywhere else you would do it. Um, And and so, like for example, they did a study on women where they used it as a vehicle for tetanus uh, vaccination and they they gave them a spore with a tetanus antigen on it. Within two hours of swallowing it, they could find anti-tetanus antibodies in the vaginal canal of the the female subjects. That's how fast it proliferated through the immune system and they found the antibodies that go against that tetanus um, antigen, even in places like the vaginal canal or the upper respiratory tract. You know, that's how important it is, and that's why I tell people to let their kids eat boogers. Right? So, <laughs> it comes down to that, you know? And I've been thinking about boogers for some time, because... Uh, and I think about all these evolutionary behaviors, right? Now, do
2: you recommend them eating their own or others?
1: Well, I think, I think if we really want to do it right, we got to have booger parties. <laughs> we are got to have family booger parties, neighborhood <coughs> booger parties. But when you think about it, like I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old, and each of them when they were between the age of three, and my five-year-old still in that phase a little bit, you know, you see them standing there, and it's so natural for them to pick their nose, pull out this really disgusting-looking thing, and why is the instinct to put it in your mouth, right? And you lose that instinct after a certain amount of time, right? So I've been thinking about boogers for a while, and then I'm, I, I, I realized that what is a booger? It's a vaccine. It's an oral vaccine. You pick up... Viruses, molds, all of that stuff in your upper respiratory tract, it's now covered with IgA and mucus and all that. And then when you swallow it, it goes into your system and it gets sampled by the Peyer's patches in the ileum. And that gives you the immunity and the adaptation to that. Same with the whole mucociliary elevator. It's designed for you guys for, to pull up stuff from your lungs and all that and swallow it. Right? And the whole swallowing concept is important because all this stuff is sampled in the gut immune system. Uh, So the spores act in that way as well. So we've had success, for example, with people that have dairy sensitivity or or an allergic reaction to certain food compounds. And when we eliminate that food from the person's diet, allow their gut to heal a little bit, bring down the inflammation, then we have docs that will slowly introduce the food in really minuscule amounts with the spores, because the spores then kind of present the food antigen to the pears patches and upregulate your adaptive immune response so you build oral tolerance to the food. So we can readapt the way our body responds to things.
2: All right, so this is, I'm, I'm blown away here because this is the first time I've ever thought about this. I just want to want to reiterate a couple things here. So a spore-based probiotic. Yeah. I was getting it wrong. I was thinking, okay, probiotic, like everybody else, we're just they're good for you, you're just feeding your own microbiome. Yeah. We know I we worked with uh, the PhD out of Texas Tech, where he was trying to develop a probiotic for C. diff infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he had a mouse model and he goes, It's incredible. It completely gets rid of it. Is that Hale? Hale, yes, yes. Dr. Hale. And he was telling me just how amazing it was. Yeah. The only problem is, it didn't work if they gave it orally. The only time it worked is when they they stuck a catheter in the ileum and injected it out, Yes. Which means it wasn't surviving until it gets to the colon. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is these spore-based probiotics have a completely different mechanism than I was thinking. It yeah. isn't like they're just populating. They're presenting. They're truly vehicles. They are. Getting yeah. down there and presenting to the immune system. Yeah. So in the ileum, which is the part of the small intestine that, that then dumps into the colon, um, it does a lot of important things, That's sure. just like you're talking about, yeah. it's got those pyrus patches which has B and T cells and it presents it. That's where you uh, absorb B12 and a lot yeah. of other things. Yeah. This is absolutely incredible. I've never thought of it. Yeah. Why didn't I know about this before?
1: You, you know, um, we've been so silent about it. We've been uh, slowly tinkering in the lab with all of this stuff and then just in the last couple of years bringing all this out. And and we haven't had the opportunity to sit down and talk as well. So. Um, it's, it's all coming out. So in the research world, there's a lot about this. That's why we've been developing these, uh, not we have, but Dr. Cutting has been developing all of these vaccine uh, delivery vehicles with the spores because it does so much with respect to the immune system. Um, one of the things it does is a Th1, Th2 balance. We see that quite a bit. So people who tend to be very inflammatory and respond to everything in an inflammatory manner, we can actually bring back the Th2 adapt. Uh, TH1 adaptive response in those people, Uh, we see a a balance of interleukin-10, which is a cytokine that brings down inflammatory response versus uh, bringing that up and then bringing down interleukin-6, you know, all of
2: these balances that we see. See, we see this, so in my world, in Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, we always talk about that, one being a TH1, one being a TH2, and then you have all these interleukins happening and TNF-alpha and interferon-gammas and stuff, and then you have drug companies going, oh, it must be this, TNF. Let's do an infusion that costs 10000 a month. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing that we always talk about with Atron heal. Mother Nature still does it better. Totally. All yeah. day long. Absolutely. Uh, Mother Nature always does and And this is,
1: you know, um, millions of years in the making. And it's just sitting out here in, in the environment for us. I always say that, you know, we were just smart enough to, to, to understand that we should look to nature for what nature has created. And then just be smart enough to use it. That's all we can be, right? We can never outsmart nature. And we see that happening all the time in the, in the um, infant formula world, which always drives me crazy because, you know, for literally 100 years, m- uh, multi-billion dollar companies have been working on infant formula to try to match it to mother's milk, and they can't. We know if you feed your baby infant formula versus breastfeeding natural mother's milk, they're going to have a lot of metabolic and other immune issues down the road. They tend to have higher degrees of, uh, higher incidence rate of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, allergies, and so on. Despite the billions of dollars that have gone in to figure out how to create infant formula, we know that you cannot match the millions of years of evolution of mother's milk, right? Nature knows what it's doing. We just have to kind of follow, be smart enough to figure out what nature has offered us and then use it. That's, that's kind of our focus on probiotics.
2: That is so fascinating. The, um, so like in my world, we don't see autoimmune disease, Crohn's, and of colitis in third world countries. Right. And the myopic view was, oh, it's because they have parasites there. We don't have it here. Right. So they have tried multiple times to feed people whipworms yeah. in the hopes of tricking the immune system the reality is they're getting a lot more spore-based stuff That's what it is. than they are getting parasites because we've never been able to actually say okay it's parasites, yeah, so I... it's probably the spore-based aspect of it. It is and, and the spores
1: control the rest of the microbiome too. That's what we were really interested on is, you know, like the product we have, the MegaSpore has five strains in it and the biggest question we always get is well it's just five strains, Shouldn't we need, don't we need more? Right? And we say no, it depends, it depends on what the strains are doing in the system. We've always had this idea that the, that the five strains can actually get in and significantly change the presence of a lot of other bacteria in the gut. Right? We think of them as the orchestrators of the microbiome. And in fact, we've kind of outsourced this function to these bacteria because there's very little control that we have within our own system to manage the ecology in our gut. Right? If our ecology goes off because of a single round of antibiotics, there's very little our own body can do to try to bring it back. Right? That's all done and controlled by bacteria. And so um, we know that these spores have been in the prescription market since 1952 by big companies like Sanofi Aventus in Germany, France, Latin marker. Yeah, they've like, been prescription drugs, actually, yeah, no, for treating dysentery and for treating gut infections. <clears throat> because they're so good at going in using something called quorum sensing, where bacteria read the microbial environment, they look at other bacterial chemical signatures. They'll find pathogenic bacteria, they'll sit next to them, and they produce upwards of 24 different antibiotics in that little space to kill off those pathogenic bacteria, right? So they have the capability of doing that. And if we have time, we'll talk about a funny camel dung story of how this was even discovered. We are going uh, yeah, to make time for We have to make time for camel dung,
2: always. There's, a, there's <laughs> a general rule in this show. Camel dung. We, we don't, we, skip, on we don't dung. skip on camel dung. <laughs> 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 you know, but what was fascinating
1: to to us about it is If these microbes have the capability of identifying and bringing down the levels of pathogenic bacteria, they've got to be able to do the opposite of increasing the growth of good bacteria. So we did two studies that are going to be published sometime in the next three months where we saw when you add these spores into the microbiome, it increases the diversity of the microbiome by almost 45%. Really? Yeah. Five strains can bring back the growth of over 300 other strains right and And it increases the diversity by, by two measures: one is richness, which is how many different bacteria are present within the sample, and two uniformity. It actually brings back uniformity to the microbiome. Nothing else has been shown to be able to do that you know and it 's almost mind blowing that you would think you can add five strains, and somehow these strains that weren 't in your gut previously are now there. Where do they come from is a question, right And so we dug into that a little bit too. And we found out that in, in certain people, these microbes are there, but they're at such low levels. They're completely undetectable by our by our research methods. Even by things like QPCR, which is a really sensitive method, we couldn't find certain strains in, in, in people, and then we give them the probiotic, and next thing you know, there are hundreds of billions of that same bacteria now present in the gut. So they were there. They're just there at such tiny amounts that they're nonfunctional. And the spores go in, and they identify the the bacteria that are beneficial but are suffering and they
2: increase their growth. So when they get in, when those spores make it to the colon, do yeah. they then go out of, uh they, they, they actually become part of the crowd or do they remain in spore form and continue yeah, to? So they, like that?
1: Yeah, so they become vegetative state, which is their growing state. So it's interesting, their life cycle. So what they do is uh, when they first get into the duodenum, they're in the spore form, which is how it is in the product. And then when they get in the duodenum, they do that molecular handshake, they come out of the spore form. In much of the small intestine, they are actually in that vegetative state, which is their active multiplying state. They're doing all of these functions. When they get to the ileum, where the, where the pears patches are, they go back into the spore form. Because as it turns out, they are more immunogenic in the spore form than in the vegetative form. Hmm. So that is fascinating when we found that in one of our studies, is that they are vegetative state. When they get to that part of the intestine, they go, oh, I know where I am. And they go back to the spore form because they're now interacting with the immune cells in the spore form. And then when they p- go past the ileum, when they enter the proximal part of the large bowel, they go back into the vegetative state. They come out of the spore form again. Now, when they're at the very end of the lar- large bowel, when they're at the terminal end of the large bowel and they're about to get pooped out, they go back into the spore form again because they know they're entering the outside world. Because then they're going to. Then they're, they're going to be in the environment, you know, where there are things like UV radiation and all that. So, so why doesn't
2: every single bacteria in the world do this? Um,
1: so these, Yeah, this this is smart. And this is coevolution over millions of years of these bacteria that we've been swallowing inadvertently. Um, and then the way I think about it is, you know, the, the world became covered with microbes, right? Those are the first living things on Earth. We know that. For a fact, um, and we'll actually talk about something called panspermia, and it doesn't sound as uh, as interesting as, as it actually is. But that um, sounds like some bacteria being <laughs> swapped. exactly that's Vegas kind of thing that happens. <laughs> panspermia. It sounds like a club in Vegas. Right. But, Welcome to panspermia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ready's night at panspermia. <laughs> um, but wait. So panspermia. The idea of panspermia is the building blocks of life: the nucleic acids and proteins that started the cellular development in life, must have come from outer space, must have come from meteorites that crash into the earth, because you can find nucleic acids and amino acids on samples of meteorites that have crashed into the earth. So the thinking is that, where did this like seed for cellular life come from? And it came during the time when the Earth was bombarded with all of these meteorites, right? Um, And so they did a study to see if there are any microbes that exist on Earth today that could have survived interstellar travel on a meteorite from, say, somewhere like Mars. And they did a study, and they found that these spores, the very ones that we work with, could survive six years in interstellar travel and actually re-enter on a meteorite and be some of the foundations of, of cellular life on Earth. And this is a published study showing so these spores that we're working with could have been the origins of life on Earth. It's not, it's not outlandish, outlandish to even think that. you know. So it's, it's so fascinating that they've been here way longer than we have. Uh, we saw that in the evidence of the spores in, the, uh, in the honeybee, you know, that honeybee are, that are 250 million years old. They found spores in a cave in Southern California in salt crystals that they could melt out of the salt crystals and still grow them, and they were over 50 million years old. And they're still alive. They've been here since the beginning. And, you know, our idea is that we've been swallowing them inadvertently as humans being in this, uh, in this earth, because they're everywhere, they're ubiquitous. And then some of them develop this evolutionary mechanism of being able to survive through the gastric system and then actually start orchestrating the ecology in us, which for a long time looked a lot like the ecology in the soil. Right, there is resonance between the ecology in the soil and the ecology of the gut. Uh, and that's part of why our world is so toxic, because our soil is dead, and so our food is dead, and our gut is dead, right? Our gut is dying, at least. And so, these are the orchestrators in the environment that became the orchestrators in our gut. And it's uh, through years and years of coevolution they figured out what part of the gut to sporulate in, which part to desporulate in, which part to interact with, what part of our uh, immune system, and then, of course,
2: they, they orchestrate the rest of the population of the microbiome. This is nuts. I have never heard about this or never thought about it like this, but you're exactly right. Yeah. Whoever the creator is yeah. said, well, I'm going to send these meteors, and I'm, I've got these guys that are going to survive all the way there. Let them help you out. And all we're doing is just spraying shit, yep. getting rid of them. Totally. Everybody. Yeah, And that's why I say we're a microbial construct
1: put in an antimicrobial world. So no doubt we have a significant amount of, chronic disease, right? It's it's no it's not unthinkable when you go, well, 30, 40 years ago, we only had, what, 25, 30 autoimmune diseases, now we have over 110. So we've created diseases for ourselves to deal with over the last 25, 30 years, and so much of that can really be rationally tracked back to the idea that we continue to use more and more antimicrobial systems, whether it's on our crops, in our water, in our homes, in our
2: food, and so on. In your studies, have you seen that when somebody is on Megaspore, that you've now determined that they come in, they can survive the upper uh, small bowel, they go into that vegetative state, they go back to spore, then they go into vegetative state, then they come out and then they're spore again to repopulate the soil or whatever it is that's there. Have you seen an increase in the proliferation as it comes through? In other words, can they... can they duplicate while they're in this environment? Can we produce more of these? In our gut itself? In our gut. They do, yeah. Yeah, they do. Now, what's interesting about
1: that is we did some systems where we are trying to overload the gut with spores to figure out can it get to, because we have people that ask us, well, if you take the same five chains every day, don't you create some sort of monoculture or something like that? And we said, well, we, we don't think you would because this is almost natural levels of exposure that you're supposed to get from the soil. And so we wouldn't have this diverse microbiome if, if, if that actually would happen. And so we did testing where we were trying to overload a, a microbiome with the spores, and we found that they reach a certain threshold level of themselves within the gut, and they don't allow themselves to exceed They keep that. each
2: other in check. They keep it in check. These are smart, smart little critters. Totally. Yeah. Holy cow. Far
1: smarter than we are because yeah. they know more about our gut than we do, right? We can't look in our gut and go, our gut is off, because we don't know what a healthy microbiome is supposed to look like. But they can go in there and go, yeah, this is not right, and tinker around with things and fix things, you know. And because of that, we, the first published study we did was on leaky gut, right. We, we've had this, this idea that leaky gut is really a result of dysbiosis, a dysfunction mm-hmm. in the bacterial population. And so with our thinking that the spores can go in there and fix the dysfunction, it should be able to resolve leaky gut. And sure enough, we have, I think, the only published study on a probiotic that shows it can resolve leaky gut in as little as 30 days. Wow. Uh, Totally sealed up the tight junctions. uh, No more uh, toxins leaking through into the circulation. And then all of the inflammatory cytokines that we looked at all came down significantly in that 30-day period. So I
0: kind of want to highlight that because there's well over 3,300 studies specifically to talk about permeability in the gut, yep. and the thing that really drew Ken and I to what you are doing with Megaspore yeah. is that research right there. Yep. Because nobody else with a probiotic, regardless of delivery system, does anything like what Megaspore does, yeah. and nobody's been able to demonstrate that. The same yeah. thing, yeah,
1: absolutely. And and we were super excited about it, because when we when we proved that then with leaky gut, and we know that leaky gut drives so many other chronic illnesses, we said, okay, if we can resolve leaky gut with the probiotic, then we should be able to fix other things that, that are a result of leaky gut. So since then, we've done a triglyceride study, elevated triglyceride. Uh, we, this study is going through peer review right now. Hopefully, it will be published in the next couple of months. But we saw about a 40 to 45% reduction in elevated triglycerides in a 90-day period. Compare that to like a prescription like a statin brings down triglycerides maybe 15% at best, you know, and then, of course, all these side effects. Even the prescription fish oil, which is a good thing to take, but the prescription fish oil brings down triglycerides by 25% at best. This is over 40%. Uh, We we just completed a study on acne because we know if you have leaky gut, you're going to have inflamed skin. We saw a 40% reduction in acne lesion counts in 30 days and compare that to the prescription uh, antibiotic that's used, Accutane, it takes them 90 days to achieve that with all of the side effects that you get from taking the antibiotic. You know? So Yeah,
2: so we have seen all kinds of stuff also when we treat people with atron um, It's shocking how many people will come up and say, oh, my rosacea cleared up. Like yeah. These other non-gut issues get better, totally. and it makes sense because it's just inflammatory cytokines floating around.
1: Yeah, and the gut is a biggest source of chronic low-grade inflammation. And we know chronic low-grade inflammation is the biggest driver of chronic disease. Um, you know, the American Diabetic Association is doing a whole bunch of studies on endotoxemia, which is a kind of leaky gut that we study. And they have at least 15 published studies showing that endotoxemia is the primary cause of, of the onset of diabetes. In fact, there's a study that just published earlier this year called a Cordioprev Study and it was 462 patients. And these are all patients that have high risk factors for developing type 2 diabetes. So they're obese, they have history of heart disease, all that stuff. And they followed these patients over 60 months, and they measured all different types of cytokines and inflammatory markers and all that to try to figure out which one of those things were the best predictors of the development of type 2 diabetes. What they showed was leaky gut and the leaking in of an endotoxin called LPS was the only marker that could predict diabetes. Hmm. Triglycerides, inflammatory uh, markers, uh, you know, interleukin-6, all of that stuff, CRP, none of that stuff correlated 100%. The only thing was the leakiness in the gut and the migration of that endotoxin. And so they even recommended that physicians use that endotoxin as a, as a predictor of diabetes risk. So everything else didn't matter as much as that endotoxin.
2: So we talked about a study that was done at TCU on, mm-hmm. uh, a couple shows ago where they actually looked at people and they induced yeah. basically inflammation by injecting LPS yes. and then monitoring them. And what they found is that the people in the study, the it was to their surprise when you talked about the bacteria and social and all this, they showed lack of impulse control, emotional lability, Mm -hmm. and they were very surprised about that. And then they actually said that there was a tendency towards addiction Mm -hmm. because the inflammatory process actually caused some neuroinflammation.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and in fact, there's evidence that shows that LPS from the gut, leaks through, can end up in the brain and actually interfere with dopamine binding in dopamine receptors.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. And, I've not seen that. Yeah.
1: And so you, even though your body's releasing dopamine, you're not binding dopamine. So then you're looking for a dopamine fix. And you get into addictive behavior because most addictive behaviors are driven by a dopamine fix, you know, a need for a dopamine fix. That's
2: exactly it. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so you're interfering with your dopamine binding from this leakiness in your gut.
2: You know, something I wanted to bring up. One of the happiest animals I've ever met that probably has really high dopamine is a camel.
1: <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. Absolutely. We,
2: we,
0: we need to get to the camel. I want to hear about the story. camel dung story. <laughs> the
1: camel dung story is fascinating. So in during World War Two the German army had, part of their campaign was in North Africa. Um, And this is super well documented, it was documented by a pharmaceutical company uh, started in Germany. And what they saw was that most of the the German soldiers were dying of dysentery. And what they noticed was the locals, when they would get gut infections of dysentery, what they would do to stop it was they would find dried camel dung and they would consume the camel dung. And eating the camel dung would stop the dysentery. So they took a bunch of the camel dung back to Germany, and they tried to figure out what was in the camel dung that actually stopped the, the gut infection. And they found Bacillus subtilis spores, which is the same spore that we work with. And so they launched that as a prescription drug in 1952 to treat dysentery from the camel dung use in North Africa. You know, and that was the first time that the spores were used in the medical world. Um, and, but they've been using it in, in North Africa and other parts of the savanna for literally thousands of years to treat gut infections. You know, and the, and so and it's also fascinating that NIH recently published a study last year. You know, we know that we're we're reaching this post antibiotic world, right? And MRSA is a big issue. Yeah. So methicillin resistant staff. Um, they did a big, I think it was a 500 patient study in Thailand, Southeast Asia. They sampled a whole bunch of people, and they were looking for the prevalence rate of MRSA colonization in people in different body sites on the skin, in the oral cavity, and so on. What they found was that there was a really high prevalence rate of colonization by methicillin-resistant staph, which is a very scary bacteria. If it starts to infect, it becomes a major problem. Um, It was like somewhere around 35 or 40% of people had colonization by MRSA. But here's the thing that was interesting. When they looked at the people that did not have any MRSA colonization, they were trying to look at their entire microbiome, the entire ecological uh, setup of their body, the only difference they could find between people that had MRSA colonization and did not have it was that the people that did not have it had high levels of bacillus subtilis spores in their system.
2: And so they could actually see, they could actually see the spores?
1: They could see the spores. They could culture the spores so they could see that the spores were protecting these people against MRSA colonization. That's how much they afford us the protection. And, and, and they've been here for millions of years. We just have to be smart enough to put it back in our system.
2: This is going to be really cool because we're launching the subscription box here, the DHAT subscription box. Yeah. And we're teaming up.
0: Absolutely. And we're going to be Atron Teal plus Megaspore. We, got a, we got one minute left because this is really one of the best deep dive scientific discussions we've had so far on gut yeah. checks. So, real quick, Ken, uh, Karan, talk a little bit about the partnership between Atron Teal. Megaspore and why, I mean, honestly, why we're excited to be able to do so this. So I'll tell you
2: how how I actually heard about you yep. first. It's because I had all these functional medicine doctors go, you need to meet this brilliant guy mm-hmm. who I think has something that can actually augment your product. Totally, yeah. And that's when you and Eric got in touch, and I'm so glad that we did, and very clearly you know your shit. So <laughs> I'm glad that <laughs> we met. I'm a
1: bacteria nerd. <laughs> I, I, I even know camel shit. As, yeah, I, you do. As it turns out. No, absolutely. It's a It's a great partnership because what you guys have developed with Entretail and the um, what that does in the body is so complementary to what the spores do in fact I bet that both products would enhance each other's effect
2: That's quite complementary
1: yes you know and when, when, when we've seen that with other things like prebiotics or polyphenols we see an enhanced impact so I think the two products in combination will be a true symbiotic which is where one one product would dramatically enhance the effect of the other so I'm totally uh, excited for this partnership because um, I think if we're e- if both of us are independently fixing guts now, yeah. When we combine it, we're going to be really fixing some guts across the board. So
0: this is fascinating. This is our first roadshow. Karan, you'll always be the first person yes, we ever did on it. the roadshow. Yes. yes. Gut Check Project, uh, man. So we're down here in San Antonio at the IFM. What is it called? The AIC? I can't remember. Annual International Conference. Oh yes. Is that uh-huh. what it stands for? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So we're down here talking to a lot of functional, med- uh, functional medicine practitioners, MDs, DOs, nurse practitioners, etc. It's an incredible conference. Yeah. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to so carve out and hang out with Ken and pleasure. I. Yeah. Ken, any parting words?
2: I just love to nerd out once in a while. That is yeah. awesome. You are thank the man. Thank you so much. Thank you. My so pleasure. So if
0: you missed anything, you need to go back to how Camel Joe was the first fecal <laughs> transplant donor. All right, I'll see you all next time.